0: Welcome to Making a Scene, an Esplanade podcast on how art gets made. I'm Chong Gua Ki, a theatre director and performance maker, and today's conversation will focus on adaptations as reflected through the work of Zuni Cosahedron, a Hong Kong-based experimental theatre company that is presenting a stage adaptation of Hong Kong writer Chan Ho Kei's novel 1367 at the upcoming Hawaii Festival. Very delighted to have Matthias Wu to speak about this with us today. Matthias is the Executive Director and Co-Artistic Director of Zuni, and also the director and one of two people who worked on adapting the novel for the stage production. Thanks, Matthias, for calling in from Hong Kong for this conversation.
1: Thank you. Hi. My pleasure.
0: Lovely. So just to kick the conversation off, I want to read to you and our listeners some quotes that really struck me from a series of four articles titled How to Understand Zuni, which Zuni commissioned for your 40 oncoming series as a way, and I quote, "Um, to review and reflect on what Zuni has been doing over the past 40 years of your work as a company. So, Tradition is actually the very first article in the series, and the writer, Dr. Rossella Ferrari, Professor of Chinese Studies at the University of Vienna, Austria, and also Regional Managing Editor for China at the Theatre Times, says the following about Zuni's work. Zuni's artistic exploration follows four main directions. Reinterpreting the classics, reinventing tradition, recreating theatre through media and technology, and reconnecting theatre with social movements. And how does Zuni reinvent tradition? Reinventing tradition means to bring forms of art and culture that have been passed down through generations over centuries to the new generations of today. Forms of art and culture from the past are adapted to new ways of thinking and given new meanings that can be relevant to contemporary audiences. Sunni have interpreted classic literary and dramatic texts as means to understand the past, illuminate its importance for the present, and think about the future. So the article goes on a bit more to address the questions of why does this matter, right? Why does tradition matter? Why should we reinvent tradition? So I'm not going to recap those questions in this podcast, but what I do want to pick up from those quotes is, how do you choose which classics to reinterpret? There are so many great literary and dramatic texts out there. How does Zuni, or how do you, make a decision about which classic to revisit? And maybe you can refer to your thinking process with 1367, Zuni's upcoming production at Hawaii, as an example.
1: I think it's always related to the context. So we are living in the context of a society, in the context of time, in the context of our surroundings. Why we pick one, three, six, seven? As because it's about history, as we all know, what happened in Hong Kong for the last five years have been very dramatic, and it's accumulation of history. I mean, a lot of historical event is accumulation of different kind of social event, and I think this novel is a very good way to talk about Hong Kong history, and not as a political way, but as a way to talk about. I the story of a police, and I think one of the reasons why entertainment always likes to pick police as a kind of character for movies or TV dramas, because police is part of the society, no matter what, you will have police, and police have to handle all sorts of things, very mundane thing or very, you know, violent or very, I mean, a lot of varieties. And somehow, I think the structure of this novel is already reinterpreting history. And when we talk about tradition, tradition is always about history, and history is about transformation of time and space. Why it called 1367? It talks about the life of the police from 2013 to 1967. So, uh, 1967 is when he was young and as a junior police officer. And then the structure is, each chapter is about every 10 years or every decades of his uh, transformation, from a junior police officer patrolling on the street. And in 2013, he's like entering his last stage of his life, but he's using an, the latest technology to communicate with his colleague to solve a crime, you know. So the parallel text is a lot about the transformation of technology, the transformation of society, a lot of things. And I find this uh, novel have a lot of creative framework that allows me to reinterpreted in a stage production that could talk about what hong kong history is about or what history is about when we talk about history we always end up uh history of power when we study history at school most of the time we spend a lot of time studying transformation of power you know who become kings who become prime minister but history is not just about power it's also about what happened surrounding the power like technology when telephone invented that transformed the way how human beings communicate. We have uh, radio, and then later on, we have uh, television, we have computer, we have internet, now we have the phone, you know. And and I think the history of technology somehow, I think is more important and more interesting than the history of politics, you know, from my point of view.
0: Mm, Thanks for that. Yeah, I think as you were talking, it became clear that it wasn't just about the history of Hong Kong society that drew you to 1367 or 1367, but also the other layers that it felt possible for Zuni to shade in. I think as a reader of the novel, um, I was quite conscious of the kind of like societal angle, but not so much the technology angle, but You are absolutely right. I think the way the novel traces the story of the detective, you absolutely can see that kind of more advanced technology compared to the very first story, the beginning, right, for for this detective. Is technology something that is very important for you when you're thinking about how you're adapting
1: a piece? I think theatre is about technology. If there is no technology, there's no theatre. I think theater is the product of technology, and it's keep transforming. I think the reason why theater still makes sense today is because theater is about real time, real space. The audience go to a theater because they want to have a real experience, rather than have it on the phone or or watching it online or at, at home. It's different because at home is more like a a personal experience. But the issue is the the concept of theatre we are having now is still a hundred years old concept. We are still stuck with this 100 years ago uh, uh, format of theatres. And so all the audience have to be sit and then have to be like watching in the same direction, you know, that sort of thing. So the pandemic is interesting. We actually magnify the impact of the online content so a lot of people are uh, get used to watching online content now. The online content is so convenient as most of the time it's free of charge, you know. And so it's, it's much more competitive for the mass consumption market. So then why we need to go to theatre, I mean for SUNY, for us, I think theatre is more like a intellectual soul searching. That you go to theatre to, to understand more about the world, understand more about yourself or or to be more dialectic rather than manipulated by the social media, you know, because you have to be committed, you have to buy a ticket, you have to go inside the theater, you have to be concentrated, you have to be totally committed when you go to a theater. Since Juni is a more uh, experimental theater, we always like to explore the relationship between the audience and the work, you know, how the work can make sense to the community. So I think one interesting thing about 1367 is, it's very popular among schools. So when we open up this special performance for schools, high school, are very popular, always. I'm also thinking, is it possible that theater could be a learning process rather than just entertainment? So when the kids come see the show, it can uh, trigger them to think rather than manipulate them to be manipulated. You know, I think the intellectual exercise is, how can we make theatre inspiring so that people know they are being manipulated? Because the most terrible thing about manipulation is, you don't know you are being manipulated. you know. Why is the social media is so scary? Because they can manipulate you and you really don't know that you are being manipulated. And somehow I think why theatre makes sense, why theatre makes us more intelligent, make us more rational. It's because the dialectic element of, of theatre, because it's a commitment. And maybe what I Sunni believe is theatre space is a place for dialogue, is a place for awakening, rather than for you to be being manipulated or sensational. Because the theatre can also be very sensational and manipulative.
0: Wow, there are so many threads from that that are really exciting for me. I really love this idea of... Theatre as an intellectual soul-searching and yet at the same time playing with the accessibility of it, right? So it doesn't feel scary to come to the theatre because, as you said, it is a very big commitment. And I'm so appreciative that with 1367 that it was opened up to the schools and even though maybe the schools and the students are coming here because it's a popular story, but through coming to the theatre you're also then able to expose them to a different kind of experience.
1: Yes, this new German immersive audio technology is a new way of sound engineering. So traditionally, you have the two channels, left and right, and then later on, you have the 5.1, 7.1, the cinema type audio. But for immersive audio, it's not just about sound effect. It makes the sound source invisible. So you just feel the sound. But then in the condition that you have a, have a very good sound engineer to tune it right. You can't do it by AI. You need to have a, a sound engineer or, or audio practitioner that understand the technology and then facilitate that. And the audio technology, I think, is a very important part of this 1367 piece. It's during the pandemic, all the performers have to wear masks, okay? But when you wear masks and then you want to talk on the stage, audio-wise, it doesn't work at all. And then I have this idea of using this immersive technology because the immersive audio technology can do sound positioning which means the sound will come from the musician or the actor on stage. It's not coming from the speaker. The sound is coming from the person you see or saw on stage. So we pre-recorded the whole dialogue. We pre-recorded the script. So like a radio play, okay? And then we use the soundscape technology so that we can position, so the audience will feel that it's real-life talking. It's not, they're acting like they're talking, but then the audio is from the audio file. And it works quite nice. another thing about immersive audio is if you tune it right, all the audience will have a good sound quality. But traditional theatre, the, the audience sitting on the ultra-right or ultra-left side, the audio quality won't be that good. But then for the immersive audio, because the idea is to distribute the frequency of sound. So most 80% of the audience will listen to good quality sound. If you tune it right, uh, the sound quality is more democratic.
0: This makes me think about what we were talking about at the beginning, about adaptations, right? That the choice of... What work to respond to is also a product of the context, the context of modern society, the context of the technology that we have to work with. I'm also really enjoying hearing you talk about the politics of the technology. I love that you talk about the immersive sound system, not just as being about immersion itself but also the democratization of the sound by being able to work with new sound systems and even thinking about different parts of the visual playing with multimedia playing with different screens those are also ways of thinking about technology as a way of democratizing the audience experience in the theater space itself
1: and then what kind of democracy you are talking about So when I am adopting this novel, one thing also very interesting, I get some criticism from the fan of this book saying that I have been too simplified. But yes, I'm simplifying because the length of this book, if I am adopting it into a TV drama, there's no problem. I can make it into like a 40-episode drama. It will be perfect. That it will truly telling you all the details from the novel because of the form. The TV drama form allows this kind of adaptation. But I'm adapting it for theatres. When I'm adapting for a theatre, there are certain time constraints. People can't sit there eight hours, you know, nonstop, you know. <laughs> so there are certain limitations, especially nowadays. People can't stay in a theatre for too long. Especially the sitting uh, are so badly designed. <laughs> just just remind me is that a theatre is about space. The, one of the reasons why Berlin Philharmonic is is a, such a great Philharmonic, it's not just the Philharmonic itself, but they have a fantastic musical hall. The space is very comfortable. Every seat is like a business class seat. Every seat, you can sit there very comfortably to enjoy the space, and the audio quality are so good. That's one of the reasons why Berlin Philharmonic sounds different when they are in Hong Kong. with the design is not so as good as it is. It's because the Western Philharmonic concert. You need to work with a hall too, with the the space too. When I'm adopting this novel, one very clear concept is to talk about Hong Kong history from 1967 to 2013, you know, which is a very important period for Hong Kong. as a lot of transformations of politics, of economy, of a lot of things. So I want audience to grab this feeling, to understand this kind of transformation of Hong Kong from '67 when we have the riot, one of the biggest riots in Hong Kong. And that riot really transformed Hong Kong because it's changed a lot of uh, policy of the British colonial government, you know. And they pay more attention to certain things and then it do more capacity building to be a more modernized city, like we have the MTR, all the advanced mass transit railway system in the 80s. A lot of new technology come up because that's part of the package when you want to develop economy. You can't develop economy without technology. I mean, same with democracy too. You can't have a democracy without technology. So that's why technology is very important for this work and also how we talk about it and relate it to all the six stories I'm not adapting the story line by line, but I'm adopting the concept of each story. And start from the character, and also the different genre of uh, drama and theater, because that is related to that particular period of time. There's a lot of unique character of different periods and then how we create a genre. And maybe that's one of the reasons why teachers like to bring school kid come because I think it is more like a summary of Hong Kong history. It's like a hack talk but in a dramatic form to tell you something about Hong Kong.
0: I think what you're saying about context becomes very, very salient now that you're bringing the show from Hong Kong to Singapore, right? What does it mean to bring it over to Singapore, which has a maybe different perspective on Hong Kong than Hong Kongers themselves might have on this novel?
1: The Hong Kong-Singapore always is like a train. I mean, <laughs> a tale of two cities. And somehow we have this kind of cultural tie, a cultural connection. I mean, the language, we are also bilingual. We can switch language, Chinese, English, and then we are very flexible and open, you know. There are a lot of similarity, And somehow, I think it's good to bring that to Singapore. And maybe it's also a way to reflect because some subject matter is similar. The context, I think bringing this work here is also good to see how the audience responds to this kind of work. You don't need to think too much. You just enjoy the audio experience, enjoy the, the acting, enjoy the, the plot. But then there are certain contexts. I develop some ideas in between each scene. I try to connect each scene with a very important transformation of Hong Kong. So for example, one particular scene I talk about the history of Kanto Bob songs. All the Cantonese identities start in the 60s. Before that, Hong Kong is still a kind of mix and match uh, with uh, people from Shanghai, from Mandarin, and we don't have what we call a Cantonese identity. But in the 60s, the Cantonese style songs become more and more popular. It become canto pop, and canto pop becomes so popular in Asia, and then it becomes a unique pop song format. So there's one part. I connect the sixty in a certain period of time. There's a lot of connecting scene between each scene that there's a certain subject matters. So I'm really looking forward to see how the Singapore audience responds to this work.
0: What I'm hearing from you is that your desire for this adaptation to also address context of Hong Kong society is embedded within the way you have created the work itself, right? That it's not just a straight adaptation of the novel, but there are these connecting scenes that then help to give context, regardless of whether you are someone from Hong Kong or from Singapore that then may not necessarily need to be as much pre-reading or scaffolding material, that what is important to you about the work is embedded within the work itself. I just want to go back to another thread that you had said earlier, where you were sharing that there were some readers of the novel who were actually quite upset with you and maybe feeling like it was a simplification of the novel. I'm curious about your experience talking with or checking in with Chan Hoki the writer of the novel, was there a lot of consultation or you had free reign to do with the material?
1: I never talked to him, I don't even, even know him, you know. The story is like this, so I like this novel and then one day I talked to a graphic designer who worked with me a long time and I thought, oh, I like this novel very nice. And then he so said, I know people who knows him. And then I said, okay, let's explore uh, adaptation of that. And then he just talked to him, and then he said, good, and then, and asked us to talk to the publisher. It's a Huang Guan, just a Crown Publishing, who also publish a lot of uh, Irene Zhang, uh novels. So we already know them. So we just say, okay, let's do it. And I, Actually, I think it should be like that. I don't think we need to, I don't want to talk to the author, you know, <laughs> because that's to make it more interesting. I think different novelists or writer have different way to handling adaptation. Some just let it be, let it go, you know, but I never talked to him and I didn't even know whether he watched it or not, you know, <laughs> I mean, no, probably he came, you know, unless he say, okay, let's collaborate. Then it's a different matters. It's a different issue. But I think one of his style is he did a lot of research. So when we read his novel, it's a lot of details about a lot of things. One scene I like very much is about pager. You know pager, uh, so it's a small box to only display uh, some simple text and numbers. So you you need to call back to the station, and then they will tell you the message. You know, and then it's like Morse code. You will see the code, and then they use this to talk about a crime scene. It's very interesting. You can really visualize some of the things. He's more like a very researched, hard-working writer. It's good. No, Actually, there's no good or bad, but it's his own style and I enjoy reading this kind of thing. Very interesting. So that's why I always like adopting academic uh, work to theatre work rather than the so-called novel, you know, because I think that academic work somehow can create more space for imagination than the novel, in a way.
0: I'm curious if you could share more about what your general process is for adapting or reinterpreting or reimagining a work, right? How does it normally start? Do you normally work by yourself or with
1: someone else? It depends. Different work have different contexts. So I adapt another history book, very important history book called 1587, A Year of uh, Not Significant. It's a very important book in China, modern China, because it's a book that inspires a lot of Chinese historians to write history in a different way. Because usually the traditional way of writing Chinese history is more like uh, a lot of mundane political terminology. But this work is based on the character rather than based on a timeline or historical incident. It talks about an emperor, Uh, It talks about a philosopher, it talks about a general, it talks about the people who are living in the era of 1587, which is the Ming Dynasty. And the major thesis of this book is about why Chinese or why Chinese civilization are losing uh, the capacity-building power and they cannot compete with the West. So it's more like a due diligence of the political and social system of the Ming Dynasty. But it's based on the character. So it's more like a novel. When you talk about the emperor, this Wan Li Emperor. He's one of the longest serving emperor of Chinese history. But also, he take the longest leave <laughs> of an emperor in <laughs> the amount of Chinese history on record. You know, he just let the institution autopilot for many, many years, and then this is the trigger point of the downfall of the Ming Dynasty. And the reason why he did that is very romantic. is because he fell in love with, uh, with one of his concubine, and then he want to certify her as queen. But then there's a lot of uh, resistance from bureaucracy, you know, and then to fight this bureaucracy, then he don't show up. (laughs) to meetings. (laughs) That's more the spicy side of the story, but a lot of details about how this institution works. And talk about also the technology and social context. So I find this history book very interesting and also it's a very unique way to talk about Chinese history. Because when I study Chinese history in high school, we need to remember a lot of facts. And it doesn't tell you why, you know. We just remember a lot of numbers. Which year something happened, which year something happened, and then it's like a formula. I think one interesting thing about history is not formula, it's how you formulate the history, is more interesting. So when I adopted that, I worked with a script writer, a TV script writer in Beijing, and he wrote a script. I worked with him and then adopted it to the stage. Ten years ago I performed in Esplanade. The Eighteen Springs uh, as I've got a novel by Elaine Jiang, Zhang Ailing, and do it more like more respecting. I try to not write new things. I use all the text from the novel because I think the texts are very beautiful. I don't want to destroy the beauty. So when I adopt it, I try to keep all the lines. Actually, 100% keep all the lines. So I think different adaptation. I use different methodology that fit the context of the novel rather than I have a one formula and then I use the formula for all the adaptation. No, I, I never do that. And I won't do that. I think to adopt a work, you need to respect the work. If you want to respect the work, you need to create a context for the work so that you can create a new connection between the work and the audience.
0: I love that the process really needs to be tailored to each specific work based on what the work itself is trying to do, what the work talks about, the way it's structured, and also where the context is in the modern society, right? The context of technology, the context of, you know, if it's pandemic, then there need to be changes made to the staging format as well. And at the same time, I think something that strikes me is this intellectual interest in really digging into each of these books, that it's not just about, oh, I want to adapt this, but what are the new perspectives that this work can give us on how and where we are in today's world? On this note, I wanted to then ask, what is a context that you would love to see moving forward in the world (laughs) for theatre, for adaptations, for Zuni's work, for the coming year and and the years beyond.
1: I think four areas that is important. One area is how we can adapt the new technology and create a new kind of theatrical experience that makes sense for people to go to theatres. Because now we are immersed by the consumption society, you know that theater as a space for public dialogue or for intellectual dialogue no longer exists. So for the last few years, I I like to start from kids because nowadays all the kids are controlled by phones, by iPhones, or you go and observe, (laughs) most of the parents will give the kids a phone and then the kids quiet and then keep playing the phone. So it's like a cult, you know, and I'm really scary of that. And if you talk to a teenager, if you take away their phone, it's like take away their soul. <laughs> okay, so how can we deal with it? I think one thing is can we create a theatre experience that can let them be more dialectic and understand how they relate to technology. I've been doing this research with a Japanese theatre consultant and some architects in Hong Kong to develop a new kind of theatre space for kids. And we have do some tests. And quite interesting, you know. And during the study, I find that all the art education is is, is the foundation of why human being is human being. Because when we talk about art education, we talk about the five senses. We talk about reality. The five senses is about reality. But the phone is not about reality. The phone is about manipulation of reality. And people cannot focus because they have to keep looking at the phone. And when teenagers have this habit, then I really don't know, maybe I'm too old-fashioned, but I think one thing is, we need to rethink about what theatre is. I think less and less people will go to theatre, that's a fact. You cannot avoid it, even in Europe. So how are we going to deal with it? We need to think of a way, especially since we are more experimental nature, we we could experiment different uh, forms uh, uh, of way. So one thing is the space. The other thing is the the subject matter. I think social media is so dramatic, you know, so melodramatic. Every moment there should be a story about tragedy and then we consume tragedy, but then we forget. So like when you eat a lot of hot food, then you don't feel it's hot enough, you know. So how can we create a different that are more related to real people <laughs> so how can we make theater become a space for meditation not in a religious way but to feel your breath to know what how you related to your your breath or what is reality. I mean, maybe that's also one possibility. And also learn something. You learn something from the theatre rather than being entertained because we have too many entertainment already. (laughs) The third issue is education of artists, the education of creative people. We need to rethink. I mean, like 100 years ago, Bauhaus developed a new curriculum based on the industrial revolution. I think the new digital game, we need to think about that. I think the AI can replace most of the architect and designer work. And even journalists, writers, you know, I'm playing around with the AI for the last two years. I see how it's transforming. I mean, they make very good music now. But then, uh, then what can we teach at our school? (laughs) If technology is doing everything, (laughs) we need to think about this. The fourth part is policy. I think policy is important. We need to understand how policy affects creativity. So I'm talking the four elements, the space, the definition of art, education of artists, and then the fourth is policy. I don't think we need art policy. We need all the policy have art elements. Then arts can have a way to develop in a very different way and a new way to develop art rather than if we confine it to art policy the technological transformation is so drastic and so quick how we can deal with it we need to find a new way to rethink what policy and what art policy is that will affect creativity
0: yeah the largest takeaway from this conversation for me is actually how do we play with the notion of adaptations on a much broader level, right? How are we as artists and practitioners really adapting to the changing role of the arts in society? How do we refine and reinvent and keep, in a way, insisting for our relevance through both adjusting to the current context, working with the technology as it changes, and actually also really thinking about adapting ourselves for this context and creating the context as is needed, right? Not just going along passively, but quite actively creating the architectural soft architecture as well as hard architecture that's needed to support the thriving of arts in this society because it is deeply important to counter the ways in which technology or the way society currently functions, supports that kind of like numbing effect where you just want more, more, more. And thank you very much, Matthias, for this incredible conversation. Thank you. Making a Scene is produced by Esplanade Theatres on the Bay, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre. This episode of Making a Scene is commissioned by Esplanade Theatres on the Bay in conjunction with Hua Chinese Festival of Arts. Our theme music is from Angels by House. Look for more episodes of Making a Scene at esplanade.com slash offstage and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Captivate.fm. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with art makers.